Uh, back to uh, the scriptures, and this time Revelation in chapter 2. Uh, Revelation 2 and at verse 8. Let's read down to verse 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Well, the name Smyrna is directly related to myrrh. You remember gold, frankincense, and myrrh which were brought to Jesus uh, when He was born. And myrrh, when it is crushed, gives off a beautiful fragrance. And that really sums up the, the message that Jesus is conveying to the church in Smyrna. And the church of the present day. We need to keep in mind that the message to the seven churches is symbolic of God's what Jesus thinks of the church in all ages and the challenges that face the church at all times. Smyrna is in the present city of Izmir in Turkey. It's about 40 miles north of Ephesus. And if you were a postman, you would start at Ephesus and the next stop would be Smyrna. It was called, because of its beauty, the first in Asia. The first in Asia. That was its title. And Jesus would, oftentimes in these letters, He would pick something out of the city and directly tie uh, something that He wanted to say to it. Of course, if Smyrna is the first of Asia, Jesus is the first and the last. If, if He were writing to letters to people on PEI, He, was, he might be writing to letter to Montague, for example, and he might... Uh, he, Montague, its slogan is Montague the Beautiful. And uh, uh, it really is Montague the Beautiful. I'm not, I'm not just making that up. Uh, you can see it on the sign as you drive, drive in. And uh, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying it's not beautiful. I'm just saying that that's... that's, the, that's I'm just saying I'm not making it up. That's all. Uh, but if Jesus was writing a letter to Montague, he might include that saying in the letter. He might include something specific about the uh, uh, land formation in a certain city. Something distinctive. And that's what he does with many of these letters. He will take some uh, specific thing from the town in which he is writing and saying, I am like this, but better. I am superior. And, or the value that this city puts upon this I am greater and better than that. So as I said at the outset, the Bible is always shaping our priorities because this life is short. 
The height of foolishness is to put all your eggs in this basket of this life if there is a life to come. Isn't that true? It, doesn't that just make sense that if this life is over like that, and if there is a life to come, that it would be utter insanity not to prepare for that life and to ask questions about that. What is the nature of that? What are the things that I have now that will allow me to access and to enter into that life appropriately? Uh, and then to, once I've discovered what they are, to esteem them, to value them. And that's what the psalm does. psalms do about the Bible. It says it's like gold. What's it doing? It's driving into the minds of people that though they may be as poor as church mice, that if they have God's Word, they are rich. And that's what he is saying to the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was a, uh, a, a well-known city. It was a wealthy city known for its learning in the sciences and the medicine. Homer, the famous uh, 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 writer, uh, came from there as well. And so Smyrna was a very important uh, city. And there was a body of believers that lived in Smyrna. But they faced incredible challenges. They were persecuted. They were disenfranchised in terms of their work, in terms of their businesses, and these sorts of things. So they needed something to face up to that. Not just economic loss, but as Jesus says to them, they will suffer the loss of their lives in time. So with that, Jesus greets the church, and He says to the angel of the church in Smyrna, again, here's this angel that is over, it's like a guardian angel of the church in Smyrna, and he's directing his message through this angel to the church. The words of the first. If Smyrna is the first among in, in, in Asia, the first in, in terms of its beauty, it has a certain preeminence, then Jesus is the one that they ought to look to above and beyond. Anything that Smyrna could give to them, any opportunities, any, any material wealth, anything like that. Why? Because Jesus, as we saw a few weeks ago, the, is the first and the last. The Alpha and the Omega. John, in his Gospel, draws this out when he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. All things were made by Him. John is leaving us in no doubt as to who this person is. He is the one through whom all things were made. He put the gold and the diamonds and the oil and all of that in the ground. And yet, even with all of that, he's saying true wealth and riches are found in him. So these, the people of Smyrna ought not to be overwhelmed by the beauty of Smyrna or the opportunities in Smyrna, neither ought we to be overwhelmed with the, what the world offers us. But every week when we come into this building, every day when we open our Bible, when we sing with our families and so on, we're being shaped a little bit more and more by the priorities of the Bible. Are you open to that? 
Is that the way you find yourself as the days and weeks and months are going on? Do you find yourself less in love with the world and more in love with the unsearchable riches of He who is the first and He who is the last? He who alone will put a punctuation mark in at the end of world history. He Himself controls, if He controls creation, He controls all things and the affairs of the world. And again, we only need to think about Ukrainian Christians who uh, in subways and in, in bombed out churches and in homes and wherever they are, still thanking God and praising God that He lives and that He is sovereign. We can learn a lesson from that. Not only they, but many, many others. They have learned the lesson that Smyrna is being taught here. And so Jesus is saying to them the words of the first and the last. When He speaks to us, He says, the words of the first and the last to you. We allow ourselves then to enter into the the gravity of that, of those words. We don't just read over it. We don't just say Jesus is describing something about Himself. We're saying He is describing something about who we are in Him. That we are safe in His hands, in the hands of the One who is the first and the last. But more than that, the One who died and came to life. He will go on to tell the uh, church in Smyrna that some of them will be put into prison and some will be put to death. Why doesn't he just whitewash it a little bit? Like a salesman. I'm not saying salesman. Uh, do I, I have, I'm qualifying myself here. I'm not saying all... Sometimes some salesmen will whitewash things, won't they? Uh, uh, but Jesus doesn't do that. He's up front. He just drags it all out. Some of you will be put into prison and some of you will suffer death. And why doesn't he just... Why does he include that? Isn't he afraid that they'll take off and move to another city? No, because I am the one who died and I live. And I live forever. And I paid for your sins through my death. And heaven and earth could not keep me from loving you so intensely. I live and I died for you. Your soul was precious to me. Your life is precious to me. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. That's why he doesn't have to edit out those bits. That some of you will suffer. Some will be put into prison. Some will have to die for what you believe. He is trusting that the people to whom he is writing get it. They understand when he says, I am the one who, li who died and lives. That they, though they die, they too will live. But that his dying and living meant more to them than their dying and living because his dying meant their cleansing, their forgiveness, their redemption, their everlasting life. He doesn't have to whitewash it. Jesus can say whatever He likes. Take up your cross and follow Me. 
Anybody, anybody who wants to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. The one who truly understands that knows, yes, Lord, though I have to take up my cross, I will follow you. Because this life is over like that. This life is but a brief shadow. It's a mist, like the fog banks out there will suddenly, when, I'm sure, when we go back out this morning, they'll be gone. That's your life. And yet, many people will do all they can, including churches, to avoid the scandal of the cross, the suffering that comes by adhering to the Christian faith. And since these Christians belong to Jesus, they will share in that life that He now has. That's just His hello to the church in Smyrna. But He commends them. This is one of few churches, one of two churches of the seven that He doesn't bring any charge against. We saw last week with Ephesus that they had a lot of good things going for them, but the one important thing they were falling behind on, they had abandoned their first love. And He says, it doesn't matter how you dress it up. It doesn't matter how we as the church dress up our living with doctrine or discipline or worship or whatever else we say about ourselves, if there's no love to Jesus and delighting in, in knowing Him and making Him known, we are dead as we live. But that was not the case with Smyrna. Smyrna, though they had little outwardly to commend themselves, they were poor. Yet Jesus says, you are not poor. You are rich. And I want to celebrate the things that you have. You are wealthy. And God wants to do the same with us this morning. He wants us to celebrate the riches that we have. Not the cars that we drove here in. Not the homes that we go back to. Not the bank accounts that we have. But being rich toward God. And that's what the church in Smyrna were, uh, were uh, uh, to rejoice in. He says... I know your tribulations and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. I know your tribulation. Much like he said in the burning bush account when Moses stood before the burning bush and it was not consumed. And God comes to him and he says, I know the suffering of my people who are in Egypt. And I have come to deliver them. And Jesus in this, again, this appearance before John, the same Lord that spoke to Moses in the burning bush is now speaking through the angel to John saying, I know their tribulation. I, I, I'm intimately aware of everything they go through. I know their hearts. I know the hearts of the people in Ephesus. And I know the tribulation, both physical and spiritual and mental and psychological that they're going through. And so He does with you and I this morning. He knows everything about you. He knows the psychological, the emotional, the spiritual, the physical strain that you are under. We can ask the same thing about ourselves. Why doesn't He do something then about it? Why, does, why, why doesn't He change it in some way? Because He wants us to know as well that 
what we have in Him far surpasses any struggles that we may endure in this life. And as He speaks to the church in Smyrna, so He speaks to us. Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in Me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He wasn't, he wasn't backward about saying that, was He? He just put it out there. Well, don't you want to win friends and influence people, Jesus? Don't you want to be positive and, and encourage? In this life you will have tribulation. Take up your cross and follow Me. Sit down and think about how much lumber you have before you build a building. Come by the narrow way. All of these things. That's no way to run a business. That's no way to start a movement. By discouraging people right off the... Yeah, but you don't know what's on the other side. For the joy that was set before Jesus, He endured the cross and scorned the shame. He says, I know your poverty. Why were they poor in such a rich city? Under Domitian, who was the emperor from 81 to 96 AD, emperor worship was compulsory. And often that was comprised of taking a pinch of incense and once a year in a public place with a certificate, no less, that was given after. And I don't have that here today. I, I was reading in a commentary the word would have been good to have that. But it, it, there's actually words of a certificate. You can look it up. Uh, but it says that such and such appeared in a public place at such and such a time and burned incense to Caesar, saying, Caesar is Lord, and then would go home. Emperor worship. This was the cult of the emperor in some of these cities, and Smyrna was one of those. What would you do? It's just a little pinch of incense, isn't it? Caesar is Lord. I'll go back to my business. What, does, what would that do to a... A believer. What would that do to their conscience? It just a, seems like in the face of the government, such a small thing. You Christians are all you know, so picky about such a small thing. Just do it. Just say it. But even such a small thing would crush the conscience of anyone who believed that, no, Jesus is Lord. Now these smirk people of Smyrna, they were ready to obey the government. Paul said in Romans 13, obey your leaders. Be model citizens. Not only obey them, but pray for them. But there also was in the Bible certain lines where believers could not cross, and that was always the way. So it was with Daniel and his friends. The cream of the crop of young men taken from Israel to Babylon. No nobility. That's who they were. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were Israelite nobility. Nebuchadnezzar says, set these, gather all these young men, the best you can find, set them apart, and we're going to use them in our government. Teach them, train them, clothe them. Oh yes, feed them too. With the food and the wine from the king's table, but Daniel and his friends said, okay, we'll, look, we'll read the books. We'll learn the languages. We'll do all these things. But we're not eating that food. 
because we believe that that has been sacrificed to the idols of Nebuchadnezzar. There's something religious about that. that there's a line we cannot cross. So, what we will do is for 10 days, this period of testing, and this is where uh, most commentators think that uh, Jesus is speaking from, for a period of testing, it could have been 10 days, it could have been symbolic of a, a, ten, uh, a testing period, but whatever it was, they said for, for, the, for this time of testing, we will eat nothing but vegetables and water, and at the end of that, see if we're not looking as good as the other men who ate the good food from the king's table. It's not a big thing to you, but it's a big thing to us. All right, you know, I could die, the chief eunuch says, but okay, we'll, we'll go with what you say. And of course, as, this, as the account goes on, they were looking better than the young men who ate the food. But in every age, there are those things that the world seems small that we're called upon to compromise on. Just do it. Just say it. You just have to say it. And you're good. Say that that man is a woman and that that woman is a man. What harm is it going to do you? What harm is it... it you're, you're, don't be thinking of yourself. Think of others for once. There's all these arguments. So that when the person is called upon to say it, you say, well, it's a big, th small thing to you, but it's a big thing to me. That's not my truth. That's not your truth. That's God's truth. God says that when He created, He created male and female, a man and a woman, and I cannot call that male a female and vice versa. But the world seeks to bend our will, bend our conscience, and after a while you die a thousand little deaths along the way. Just a pinch. Just a pinch. Say, Caesar is Lord, and you can go back home to whatever religion you have. And that, just, just say, Caesar is Lord. That was the cult of the emperor. We have to be careful, friends, that it's often in the in the, the, the devil is in the details, as, as they say. To the world, it's nothing. But the devil knows. Sometimes in those small things where he is lurking. And if he can get us to deny God's truth in one aspect, we're ripe for the picking in other areas as well. But many Christians refused to do that and lost their economic station in life. They lost their job or their business was run out of town or whatever it was. And they say, we're poor. We don't have, I don't have a job anymore. I can't support my family. I can't do this, that, the other. I'm not as known as well in the community as I was because I had that job. I had that little business on the corner. And now what? The one who was the first and the last, the one who died and is now alive, comes to them and from his mouth says, you are rich. You are rich in the things of God. You know what is valuable. You know that truth matters. And you're not willing to compromise on that. Jesus says there's no man that has left 
father, mother, brother, and sister who will not receive a hundredfold in the life to come. Again, he's putting, giving us that perspective. Small in the eyes of the world, but huge in our eyes. And this may be our Smyrna. These things that are now transpiring in our society where the Christian faith is becoming more and more alien in the culture in which we live, where Christian truth and Christian morality is becoming uh, 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 seen as being hateful and bigoted and narrow. And we don't know in what ways we are going to pay for that. Even now on our own island in the public school system, to call anything, a child anything, other than the pronoun they want to, is akin to prejudice. That's the language of the school system. That's not my language. I'm not making it up. That's what the actual documents say. It will be an act of prejudice against that person. So where, where does that then put Christians, or anyone has, who has a conviction about that, but in a very sinister light? And so, Christians in Smyrna were put in a position to worship the emperor in this seemingly small way with a pinch of incense to say, Caesar is Lord, and then that's it. But they would not do it. Daniel would not defile himself with the food from the king's table because he had a conscience about it. As Luther said, an act against conscience is neither right nor safe. Yet Jesus says to them, you are rich. We are rich, friends. When we know the unsearchable riches of Christ, what... what that's what Paul talked about in Ephesians. The unsearchable riches of His mercy, of His grace, of His love, of His knowledge. The grace that drew salvation's plan. The love that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span on Calvary. You see what he's talking about in that old hymn? It's the riches that he's found in Christ. Are you rich toward God this morning? Are you poor toward God this morning? Do you consider who you are and your well-being bound up in this life? Or is it bound up in God? When Abigail came to David in the wilderness, when David was in a rage and he was going to kill Nabal for, for, for dissing him, Abigail says, don't you know who you are? Don't you know that your life is bound up in the hand of the Lord? And that you're going to be king? That you have an awesome destiny out of you? What are you doing? You're going to throw it all away right now by going after and shedding innocent blood. Again, we're being shaped and molded by those accounts in God's Word. I hope you are rich toward God. That you are seeing this world and all its glory is less and less and more and more of Jesus say it's by His precious blood. We were redeemed not with gold and silver, says Peter. Not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Without spot and without blemish. 
Peter and John could say to the, the lame man at the, at the temple gate, Gold and silver have we none, but what we have we give unto you. In the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That's where their hearts were. They saw the wealth. It's like they walked around seeing it all the time. The, the unsearchable riches of Jesus that will save us and save the world. So he says, I know the slander. He says, I know the, the poverty and the slander. Again, going back to what we said originally about the emperor worship, the Jews were exempt from that. And they lived under a kind of an exemption law. And under that umbrella, Christians lived and were kind of identified with them as a kind of a subgroup. And so for a while, they escaped the persecution. But there were Jews in Smyrna whom Jesus identifies as not true Jews. In other words, not those who are... They, they had the blood of Abraham in them but they had a spiteful attitude toward these Christians. He says, they're not with us. They would go down to the local government office on a Monday morning and say, hey, these, these Christians are not one of us at all. They should be penalized for what they're doing in not honoring Caesar. Polycarp, who was a famous early church father, was one of them. He was a follower of John, the Apostle. And Polycarp was, was uh, persecuted by these Jews in Smyrna and called out by, by them. Polycarp said when he was put to death for his crime of nonconformity toward the government, he said, 86 years I have served Christ and He has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my King who saved me. That's what Polycarp said before he met his death. He understood what Jesus said when He said, you are rich. You don't need what these people are offering, even the offer of life. You don't need that. I am your life. I am the first and the last. I died and I live. Polycarp understood that. And so Jesus says, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. God is then overruling the purposes of the devil in his rage. <laughs> the devil's chief aim is to destroy God's people. And what he does is have some of them under the usefulness of the, the local authorities have some Christians thrown in prison and some put to death. But Jesus says, I'm using it as a test. Some of you will be tested. Don't you want to be tested? If you buy a house, you buy a car, you buy something of great value, what you want to know. Is this authentic? Is this a purebred dog? How do I know? What's the value of this house? Is this car in good working condition? You want to test it. You want to see. You want to make sure. And Jesus wants us to make sure that we are in the faith. That it's not just playing games. And what He does sometimes 
is he will throw us into very difficult situations. Like gold refined in a fire, what comes out? Will there be gold and silver? Or will it just be dross? Oh man, I threw that into the fire and there's nothing there. Just, there's nothing. But when you put something into the fire and it comes out, oh, look at the gold, look at the silver. Look, there was something real there that was of value. You want that, don't you? Shouldn't you? To say, Lord, yes, test me, try me. I want to know if I am in Jesus truly. That what I have is not a hypocritical faith, but that it's a real, living, vibrant faith. I've made a habit of that in my life. Lord, test me, try me. Whatever it is, you, God's, God's not erratic. God is not foolish in how He goes about dealing with us. He's a loving Heavenly Father. He's a shepherd. He's not going to completely crush you under your trial, but He'll give you exactly what He needs to test you so that you might be able to say, I do know Him. I do believe in Him. I am a Christian. Because now I've found through this trouble that what really matters is not that job, it's not the public opinion, it is God's opinion of me. I now long for heaven more. I love Jesus more. That's what happened with Paul. The more you beat him, the more you stoned him and whipped him and did everything to him. He could say, I know in whom I have believed, he says to Timothy in his old age when he's just about to die. I know in whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. I know. I know. So just as Jesus comes to the church and says, I know. I know you. The church responds and says, we know you. We know you. And we love you. And we're willing to give everything to you. That's the glory of God manifest in our lives. Jesus saying, I know you. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know your distress. And then for Jesus to hear disabled church on a Sunday morning say, yeah, but we know you. And we love you. We thank you for your grace and for your truth. We thank you for the crown of life that you lay up, set upon our heads. We thank you that you're able to take even the struggles of our lives and turn them for our good so that now we see that this problem was not just a random act of misery in my life, but you were bringing me forth as gold and silver. And I can say as the psalmist that Blessed be the day when God laid that affliction on me because now I know you. Now I know you better. Now I'm more confident in you. And so he says, be faithful unto death and you will receive the crown of life. This again is, as some think, a reference to something within the city itself. Like I said at the outset, there was a, 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 a buildings on the top of Mount uh, it, it was called Mount Pegos in Smyrna that looked like a crown. Sometimes you've seen these water towers 
that when the water goes down, the, the tops of the water towers, they, they kind of look like a crown, don't they? The old ones do, at least. Maybe it was a water tower. But they were in a very prominent place and they looked like crowns. And Jesus says, no, oh, wait now. I will give you the crown of life. I will lay a crown of life upon your head. I will, you will know eternal life. Don't worry about being put to death. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is that second death? God said to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, He says, when you eat the fruit, you will die. Well, of course, they didn't die right away. They died physically later on, didn't they? And death came into the world in that way. But then there's a second death where when we die, we are eternally separated from God. We come under His punishment for rejecting His good news, for rejecting the Gospel, rejecting Jesus and breaking His law. This is what the Bible calls the second death. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. How do we avoid then the second death? The, the consequences. And hopefully we've established that when we looked at what Jesus went through on the cross at the end of Matthew. You say, why did He suffer such in such a way? Why did He bleed and die and cry out, My God, why have You forsaken Me? Why did He sweat, as it were, great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane? Because there is a place of judgment. There is a hell. And it's because God is good. He's a good judge. Just as we will say any judge is good on Prince Edward Island because they punish wrong. And we cannot rob God of that prerogative. And God says there is a place of judgment coming. But those who believe will not be hurt by that. That means they must have the second birth. You must be born again. You must have a new heart given to you. You must come to understand and realize what Jesus has done on the cross for sinners. Jesus said that to Nicodemus, one of the most famous Jews in all the Bible. He says, you, sir, must be born again. Your good living, your righteousness, all the things that you think are good cannot save you. You must have a new heart, a new birth, a second birth. You were born once from your mother. You must be born again in your heart to appreciate and know the things that God has done. And when you do, you're able then to embrace the death of Jesus on the cross on your behalf. You say, Lord, I believe. Before I was blind, I was dead, I couldn't see. But now when I look at that cross, I see the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. And that can only be attributed to the fact that God has made you alive and new, given you a new heart. And when you are able to receive the gift of God's salvation, you escape as Jesus says here, the second death. There is a fate worse than death. And it's the second death. 
Jesus says, do not fear Him who is able to destroy the body and after that can do nothing. But fear Him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And that's what He's directly referring to here. But friends, in the light of all that we have seen this morning and seen in these passages, the heart of Jesus, may you turn to Him this morning, each and every one of us, young and old, the one who speaks so passionately to the church, the one who was the first and the last, the one who died and now lives, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, the one who holds world history in his hand. Submit your heart and life unto him. He, he is the one who gives the crown of life. He is the one who is able to save us unto the uttermost. We're safe in him. May His Word shape and mold your heart toward eternal things. The things that cannot be seen. Not the things that are seen around you, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are eternal. Let's pray.